today's sermon will be very front-loaded, as you will see, where I'll have two points, and the one first point will be the majority of the time, and then we'll have two shorter points, and I'll get back to this. As last Lord's Day, I told you that this would be a part one and a part two sermon, in a sense, where I said that chapter three, the end of it, would be the one coin, one side of the coin, and this the other, because they are so tightly connected to one another. In part one, we looked at, that, was, that is last time, we looked at insider, insiders versus outsiders, the defining of boundaries of who is with them and gleaning from it. Gleaning is also something we'll do today. Who is against him? I pointed out that the emphasis of the text last time was that forces were trying to to obstruct or undermine Jesus' mission, be that demons, curious or greedy people, or Pharisees, and even Jesus' own family. His mission, stated by himself in chapter 1, is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And this echoes through the melodic line, the red thread through the book of Mark, that Jesus brings the kingdom of God to earth in full as the messianic king, and he teaches us how to be worthy of that kingdom by becoming his disciples. And this is what we'll continue to look at today, becoming his disciples, what it means and who they are. In part one, we saw that Jesus chose his disciples and that he stormed the devil's house to save us. In that, we also saw the theology of unconditional election that God chose to save for no reason that you or I can influence, in a sense. Our salvation never rests on any condition that we meet. Quite opposite, actually. Jesus saves us from the condition of sin that we are in. Unconditional election is that God does not foresee an action or condition by which he is tempted to save us. Like We do not give him a reason to save us. Rather, election rests on God's sovereign decision and grace. In this part two, we will look at this, who is selected, but much more emphatically, as the text will show us, what happens to those who are saved. So, today this will all be looked through through the lens of parables. A parable is and an allegor- a parable and an aller- allegory is not the the same thing. There are some major differences in it. Whereas an allegory usually is a poem, an image, or story, where one needs to interpret the idea given through the allegory, find the hidden meaning behind it, if you will. A parable is often just a simple story or a picture. Very simple story, very simple illustration that conveys the meaning. The word parable means something like that, something that is placed alongside of or next to something to compare, to illustrate, or to clarify. In a sense, saying that I have something I want to convey, and alongside it, I will give you an illustration that can connect to it. The story of Narnia 
there, there's a, this allegory that when you look at Aslan, the lion, you're like, that might be a picture of the character of Jesus in a sense, but the story never says this is Jesus. That is an allegory, something, a picture, a story, something that is hinting at something that this might just be if you can correctly concern or discern what it's about. A parable that Jesus uses is just a story. It's plain, it's simple, but it can convey a very meaningful um, truth. And Jesus often taught in parables, and he usually used everyday situations like fishing, farming, household, uh, state things like paying taxes, obeying governors. He used stories that were very familiar with the setting he was in. When he spoke about fishing, he was in a, in a culture where they were fishing almost every day or saw fish every day and at least smelled fish every day. So if you're in a, in a desert somewhere and there's lack of water and Jesus here is explaining a parable of fish, you might be like, uh, I'm not sure I get it all. So this parable was to his audience and I will try to explain what he meant by it so that we have the same mindset that his hearers would have. As one commentator puts it, parables cannot be understood apart from the one who tells them. Parables are not just simply good advice, they are good news, for the life of Jesus is itself a parable, indeed the greatest parable. In this portion of scripture we'll see how people respond, how people respond so differently to Jesus and the same commentator said, if the proclamation of the kingdom of God is euangelion, good news, why is it not being universally embraced? And seeing that the demons rightly recognize Jesus as the son of God, how can those in authority and the scriptures, the learned, not acknowledge him? And they even go so far as they attribute his works to the devil. They must have heard the, dev the demons' proclamations, one could assume. But let us, for now, become farmers and have the same vocabulary that they had and know what Jesus meant by it. My title then today is, and this is not, also not stated because of technical problems, but it is, Jesus sows the seed in the, of the kingdom in you. Jesus sows the seed of the kingdom in you. I have three points this morning. We will look at first, and I'll give these when we get there also. The word increases abundantly in good soil. The word increases abundantly in good soil. This will be looking at verses 1 to 20. My second point, let what is planted in you shine. Let what is planted in you shine. Looking at verses 21 to 25, this lamp. And thirdly, the kingdom of God will come to fruition. The kingdom of God will come to fruition, meaning bearing fruit. Looking at verses 26, 26 to 34. My first point then, and as I said, this point will be very front-loaded, because 
in it, we will see Jesus' own words saying that this will be the key to understanding all other parables. So I'll spend most of my time here, as you'll see eventually. <coughs> the word increases abundantly in good soil. Here we have this first parable called the parable of the sower, or sometimes called the parable of the soil, or the parable of the seed. And let us see what Mark is showing us here. So again, Mark is teaching by the sea. This time also, this large crowd gathers among him, about him. In the last chapter, we saw that the text said that they were crowding to get to him. They were almost clawing their way just to touch him because they, they've heard that if you touch Jesus, you'll be healed. And so it was this mob mentality, I just need to touch Jesus. And Jesus says, we need to leave from here because this is not what I came to do. And the text in chapter 3 says, because he was, well, paraphrasing, Jesus was concerned that they would actually trample him. The text says, lest lest they crush him. But here in this chapter, we see Jesus also on the seashore and also a boat. But in this time, he doesn't take the boat and leaves. He takes the boat and he sits on it and teaches to them. So, well, one thing is that then they do not, they didn't have the, the, the crowd, didn't have the possibility of crushing him like, like they almost did last time. And also, as I will say, that modern day Israelites have, uh, who does excavating and geologists, they have found out that there's a certain place along the sea of of um, the shore there that is it's almost structured as an amphitheater like a lesson hall it's almost like going upwards from the mount from the sea and they call it the bay of parables the the bay is uh, i think i think you know what a bay is like a dent in the seashore and almost like the, so we don't know if jesus was there they call it that but what they found there is that if you are on the sea and you're standing or standing, sitting in the boat there, you can easily speak. You don't have to raise your voice. You can just, well, I'm not saying whisper, but they said without effort. You could speak and it would carry the sound waves to thousands of people. So it's probably, well, it can be that Jesus was there, not necessarily that he was there. But it at least shows there was a possibility for Jesus to preach to thousands as he was in this boat. Now to, to what he said, verse 2, and I'll read it again. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in, this teach, in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the, gra- on the rocky ground where it did, a- did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and hundredfold. 
And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear. You're now actively hearing, I hope. And this is the word that Jesus is using. He's not just saying, hey, listen up. Let me tell you something. The word here, listens, is not just listen to this. It might be worthwhile or time if, if you deem it. It's a command. It's in the imperative. It is listen. It's not just ah, listen. It's listen. The Greek word for it is akuo, meaning to pay close attention and to strive to understand what is being said. It's not just the in the one ear and out the other ear and you forget about it. Uh, having done, having sat under much preaching, sad to say, and much uh, of uh, uh, teaching in the university, there were some times when what the professor said entered the one ear and exiting the other. I can see someone smiling, maybe recognizing it in themselves. This is not what Jesus is saying here. He is saying, pay attention to what is being said. Like this is a, this is important. Make sure you f- hear this. I urge you to do the same. Akuite. Be ever like the Bereans who receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so as we read in Acts. This is what they needed to do, Jesus' audience. And this is what we have to do if we are to fully understand these parables and any preaching and any text. Mark, in fact, calls his audience to listen, this acuity, ten times in this chapter. So it's not just listen. It's listen, 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 listen. I won't do all the ten, but he is repeating it many times as we go, and we'll see it. It's a call, pay attention to what's being said here. So a sower went out to sow, and he takes his seed, probably out of a bag, and he tosses it to the ground. He spreads it, he sows it on, on the ground here. And reading the text, it, se- it seems like, and some fell on the, on the rocky ground, some fell among thorns, some fell on the path. It seems like he's just wasting his seed almost in and around the greater area of Stavanger, there are a lot of farms and in it, and probably every other farming place. We see lines, we see structures, we see everything is neatly organized. You plow it, and you have the lines going, and you plant it, and you're very careful so that you're, you're making the most of what the seed you have. The sower here seems to be wasting his seed. He's sowing indiscriminately. He just throws it out indiscriminate. To discriminate means to choose from. So he doesn't, he does not choose only to sow in some places. He's sowing it indiscriminately. And as he does so, some fell on hard sun-baked ground, some fell on the rocky untilled land, and some fell among the thorny bushes or on beside the field and some clear, some fell in good soil. As they were, as they were, and knew much about the daily work of farming, they clearly understood the scene that it is here before us, the or- original hearers. Um, the seed that fell on, on the path was eaten by birds. 
The seed that fell on the rocky ground sprang up, but it had no depth of soil, so it withered because of the sun came. And, well, this happens to every plant. The sun falls on it. But normally it's, it's giving nourishment, but given too much sun and not enough soil where it can get water from, it'll scorch it and kill it. And some, thorn, some f- fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and overshadowed the grain, so it had no, no uh, sun. So in one sense, it's one place it's too much sun, and the other place it's too little sun, and it killed the, f- the grain. But this fourth soil, the good soil, in this the grain grew up and yielded its grain. It was the same seed, it was the same sun, but the difference was in which kind of soil it was in. in a, and to tell you now, it was not just a haphazard or careless farmer who sowed. He sowed everywhere on the field. He had his field and he sowed everywhere on it. Um, <laughs> Bakum, another preacher, he says that there's a difference between everybody and everybody. He is like... Everybody is everybody, but everybody, that is like, you cannot get away from one single one. So this farmer, he wanted to cover his entire field. Because normally at that time, they would first sow and then plow the earth. Here now, we first till the ground, we plow the ground, and then we carefully sow along where we have plowed or tilled the ground but there in that culture there in that specific geography they first sowed and then plowed which was normally used by a heavy stick maybe made out of wood or metal they would sow first and then they would till they would plow the ground because normally they had well in that geography that belt on the earth it's not moist normally as it is here. Here we can just till the earth and the seed will go in it. But there they sow it first and then by tilling it, they broke the crust of the hard earth and so the, the seed actually could go down into the earth. So they almost like, when you're baking, you're not just tossing everything on top and letting it stay there and you're not mixing before you add ingredients because then you had no ingredients. So that's true with the soil. They first sow and then they work the seed into the ground after. And it's not as the, the sower knows that, oh, here's the area of thorny bushes or here's just hard, rocky ground. I'll just sow some here even though I know the thorns will quench it. Or on the other side, rocks and hard, packed earth I don't, sow, I don't sow here. But as the text says, the thorns hadn't sprung up yet. And he hadn't tilled the earth yet, so he didn't necessarily see which soil was which kind of soil. He couldn't see that before he had tilled it and before the vegetable, well, not the vegetables, <laughs> the vegetation had grown up. So he, he, it was not as he was sowing carelessly into the thorny ground, he was sowing all over to try to find the good soil. 
It was not that he saw, oh, good soil, bad soil, bad soil, good soil. I'll just sow here and here. He sowed everywhere to make sure that he got some yield. The grounds were underneath, the, the rocks were underneath the ground. The, the ground was already hard crusted anyways, because it's not that like, it's raining there every day, like it's almost doing here. And the thorns hadn't grown up yet. So he didn't know which ground he was sowing into before it would take some time and actually show itself. So even though rocks, thorns, and other elements reduced the grain, in a sense, three out of four places, it goes from this discouraging odds where it's like, oh, almost all of my seed is gone. But it's ending on an enormous harvest, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold of what was sown. Uh, One to ten ratio in that time was a good, that was a good harvest. If you sowed one kilo of grain, I don't know how they measured the amount of grain they had, but if they sowed one kilo and they got 10 kilos worth back, that was a good harvest. A 30-fold is rare. A 60-fold is almost unheard of. And a hundredfold. Now that was surely a sign of divine blessing having its like in Genesis 26, 12, and Isaac sowed and reaped a hundredfold in the same year. They knew that it never happens that you get a hundredfold back. That just doesn't happen. So if it happens, it's by divine blessing. What's their take on it? And I think it's a good take on it. Jesus is basically saying that God's hand of blessing is at work here in the good soil. And later we will see that the seed is the word. And throughout the gospel, Jesus teaches, preaches, and proclaims as much or as faithfully as the sower sows. He who has ears, let him hear. Again, the book ending of this, these two, this uh, parable is bookended. It's like clamped together a bit with... Let him hear, hear this, hear this, pay attention to this, and think about what it means. But understandably so, his disciples do not understand what it means. So they go to him and ask, uh, what is this parable meant to teach us? What does it mean? What does it convey? And Jesus says to them, To you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is a parable, so that they may in see, indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is a, uh, uh, this is a um, text with, that we need to treat carefully, because it seems here that Jesus is saying, I speak in parables to prevent people from coming to the kingdom of God, right? It's, it may seem like that, but I'll get back to it, so hold on. The disciples then, not just the 12, it says the 12 and those who are with them. So it's uh, Jesus, he has his 12 disciples, and he has a larger group of more generic disciples, if you will. And they ask them, can you tell us, because we don't understand it. And... One might think, Jesus, why didn't you just explain it to them all? Here in 
10 to 12, verses 10 to 12, Jesus gives his reasoning for why he doesn't speak, speaks plainly, why he has it in parables. And some say that it's one of the most important sections in the New Testament, some scholars say, because on this hinges who gets in and who gets out, in a sense. So this is why this text, this first point is front-loaded, because it has this in it. It would be comfortable for me to just gloss over it and say we don't know and we won't know until we get to the kingdom of God. But to be truthful and faithful to texts, this is why I'm spending so much time here on this portion. So remember in that last chapter, when Jesus' family is looking for him, and he then looks to those sitting by his feet, and he says, these are my brothers and sisters and mother. These, this is my family. And to them he will reveal it. And one of the revelation is in fact that the, is the fact of insiders and outsiders. When Jesus is saying, to you, speaking to the, the twelve and the others, to you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So there's a pretty clear difference in the groups Jesus is addressing. You guys here with me now, and those. You here, those outside. And this is, um, and this secret then, the secret of the kingdom of God, the secret. I delivered a sermon here a little bit earlier, well, maybe half a year now, where I argued that the mystery, I think it was in Colossians, the mystery of the gospel was not that it's, uh, that one might think as a mystery is like, oh, it's a puzzle I need to solve. It's just something that I haven't understood yet. I just need to work it out. I just need to figure what it means and open it up. And then the mystery will be clear to me. Jesus is saying the same thing here, that uh, mystery is something that was hidden. It was unknown and it had to be revealed by revelation. It's not something that they could figure out themselves. Jesus is saying that this mystery, this, the secret of the kingdom of God, needed to be given. To you has been given the secret. <coughs> and this we also see the foreshadowing of the coming, the coming explanation to the first parable. Those who are fat Jesus' family, those who did hear, those who did hear in faith, even though they didn't fully understand or comprehend it, are given the mystery of it, and in so becomes fruitful. So then the quotation Jesus gives, that they may, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but, do not, un- but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This seems to, see, to say that parables are not like a clear window that people can look through to see what's on the other side, but they have this matte film over the window like one would do it in a bathroom. Like they would conceal the window in a sense that they would make it less clear to look in to hinder them from truly seeing. That it's not their hearts that are preventing them, but that God is preventing them from hearing. And this was troubling to me as a younger man, and who can fully understand this piece of text. But this quotation is from Isaiah 6, 9 to 10. 
and it occurs six times in the New Testament and always in the context of unbelief and hardness of heart. But this is not all that Mark here implies. So it's given in the context of unbelief and hardness of heart. Sorry. But still, remember this. The sower did sow everywhere, even on the ground that wouldn't produce harvest. What was sown? A parable, not a clear teaching. And then Jesus gives a secret, but also blinds the eyes of the unwilling. But do not miss this. The disciples of Jesus came to him for the explanation. The others did not. But there's nothing that hindered them from coming to him and asking for the, for the explanation. Jesus' disciples wanted to know. They did hear faithfully. They did want to figure out what this, what this meant. They wanted to understand. In this sense, the others, those on the outside, was not hindered from coming to Jesus and asking, what does this mean? He did not hinder them from coming to him, as we'll see in a moment. He did so in them. He did give them the teaching, but they didn't want to hear. And this is on the the hinge, like the door hinge. It all hangs on. They did not hear willingly or thoroughly. They didn't pay attention to what Jesus was saying. So he went into one ear and out the other ear. So they did not get the secret revealed to them. So if you see the, if you then see, look at this text and see Jesus as harsh or unfair, I tell you, you haven't seen what he's saying. He revealed in this giving parables, he was not unkind to those outside. He revealed by so doing, he revealed the states of their hearts in doing so for his purpose. And now he will give the, the secret to it. So again, Jesus taught in parables because he wanted people to come to him to ask for the explanation. He could have said, okay, guys, I will now explain to you fully what it all means. Like every letter will be explained. He could have. But the text shows that some heard, some wanted to hear, some wanted to hear more. So he is not, I think, well, maybe he's not just wasting his time. Like he could spend hours and hours and hours with all the multitude who didn't pay attention. Instead, he gave it to a par- in a parable, calling people to understand it, to hear attentively. And as I sometimes had to do when studying, I had to go to the professor and ask, what did it all mean? I didn't understand it. Can you explain it to me? And he did. So Jesus will do here now. So it will be given to those who seek it. I direct your attention to verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So he's saying this is the key to understanding all kinds of parables. The sower sows the word, and there are some, one, the ones along the path, where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the, 
And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, the seed, the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who are sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. So in this sense, he is ex- the explanation he gives to the first parable is summed up in the secret, that it is a parable so that people of good soil and bad soil will reveal themselves. The bad soil did not want to hear, they did not want to come faithfully and truly. So Mark here returns to the, in a sense, sandwich. It's the parable, explanation, and, oh, parable, the explanation of the parable, and then this revelation in the middle, this burger, or (laughs) a sandwich text is something that talks about A, and then talks about A again after, but there's a part in the middle. So he's returning to the first here with the interpretation. He says that it's crucial that they get this, or else, how will you then understand all the parables? He's saying that this parable is the key to all other parables. And I think, as we'll see, that Jesus explains it pretty clearly. I I don't think I need to use too much time on this part, because it's clear. Jesus is, is almost like, this is the... This is the, the, true, the correct answers to the text, to a test in a sense. It is revealed that the seed is identified as the word, generally accepted as the gospel, Jesus' message itself. And the four different soils that follows are the ones who hear the God's word, Jesus' word, and they are commended and commanded to hear, hear, akuite, insiders, Disciples are those who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Outsiders are those who don't. The first three types of hearing are those where Satan steals the word. That is the bird that comes and eats it. And those who have no root so that they fall away when it just gets a little too hot for them. And those where the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things comes and it becomes too strong for them and they gets a too strong foothold in them, and so they choke the word that is, in, that is sown in them. They have the, as I mentioned earlier, the in the one ear and out the other ear. Their failure to hear marks them as outsiders, and in them the word of God becomes fruitless. It was the same word. They all got it. But the good soil, they hear it, And hearing, receiving, and bearing fruits are the marks of the disciple of of Jesus. And what what are the results? A marvelous harvest, bringing in 30, 60, and 100 fold what was sown. The point then is that those who want to be Jesus' disciples must not just listen, they must acuity. They must hear and try to understand what is being said. And their interest in it reveals if they hear or not. It is a parable to show that the word increases abundantly in good soil. And this is to show why some oppose him and why others come to him. To, to close this first point, this, this <laughs> rather large point. 
in the Old Testament, sowing is related to the blessings God will give to the future, give Israel in the future. Looking at Ezekiel 36, 9-11, it says, Ezekiel 36, 9-11, For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply people on you, the house whose Israel, the house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited, and the waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is, in a sense, in a sense happening in this text and in our time as well. In Jewish literature, the harvest is often a metaphor for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So when speaking of harvest in the Old Testament, think kingdom of God breaking through and multiplying and the harvesting of God's kingdom, the fruits of it is collected. As Jesus went around preaching, we see people reacting to him differently and this parable tells us why. Because they are hard soul, already having hard hearts, they do not hear, and the word is quickly eaten from them, the devil prowling, seeking someone he can devour. This is your typical person who lies about what we believe. The You can't really mean that you believe that fairy tale nonsense about a guy in the sky. That kind of person, hostile in a sense to the word. Others, rocky ground, listen to him for a time, but they generally believe that God will give them an easy life, bless them all the time. And although it's true that the Lord pours out his blessings on both the just and the unjust, these people are not listening to Jesus' own words in warning them about persecution and hardship. In James 1, 2-4, it says that these, were hard, these hardships are what develops a deeper and more solid faith. But faith can only grow if we are rooted in Christ, as it says in Colossians 2.7. The thorny ground people are those who hear the gospel, but not so much that they want to give up their worldly comforts and affections. This is what commonly is called as the carnal Christian or the worldly Christian, which is no Christian at all. But the good soil, the willingness in their hearts to hear and submit to the word that is sown in them, that word increases abundantly in them. Because of this parable, we must always, tr- and this is an important point, because of this parable, we must always treat people in the hopes that they turn out to be good soil. We must proclaim and love as a sower indiscriminately because we do not see the condition of people's hearts. We do not know what is underneath the surface. So we cannot, uh, we cannot be as Christians are sometimes pro- um, put forth to be like just finger waggling and only loving their own. Then we're trying in a sense to look for good soil and only sow there. But that is not what Jesus commands us here and not through the Bible. We are to sow indiscriminately. We are to love indiscriminately. We are to care for people indiscriminately because in the hopes that it will be good soil. And the Bible says that the word of God is never wasted. 
It does not return to him void, but accomplishes what he wills with it. And another thing, we were all at one time bad soil. It was only by the grace of God that we were made into good soil. He made us alive. The dead heart, the hard heart in us was replaced by a living heart. So we have no point of boasting because we are apparently good soil. It is all out of grace so that none can boast other than in the Lord for his great mercy. Two quicker points done and smaller than the first, I reassure you, although I hope you get something out of this. And because of the quote I just said, it will not return void. I trust it will not be just a bore to you. You will get something from it. Maybe just from, from the reading, but hopefully from the explanation of it too. Point two then. Let what is planted in you shine. Let what is planted in you shine. And we will look at this parable on, of the lamp. Join me in verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on the stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone hears, have ears to hear, ear, ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Here again, hear, hear, hear. Pay attention, pay attention, acuity, listen carefully. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? No. This is, and this is not just a random... So that, like, that is his... It's, a, uh, it's not a hypothetical question, but it's a question that doesn't need answering. Because of course it doesn't. Like, does the sun rise tomorrow? Y- yes. Is a, is a lamp brought into a house to be covered, to be concealed? No, that is against the purpose for what is brought into. And this is not just the random lamp. This parable here of the lamps is not just that Mark thought, oh, I have this parable of the lamp. I need to put it somewhere. This is the revelation that Jesus here is making. So this lamp is connected to the parable of the seeds and the soils and the sower, the first point, and it will also be connected to the latter portion of the growth and the abundance of growth in the last part, in the last point. So another way of saying it would be, does the lamp come to be put under a basket or under the bed? No. The reason it has, has come is to give light, to shine, to reveal, to illuminate. Psalm 132.17 says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Or in another translation, I will set up a lamp for my anointed. A lamp is never to be put under something. The Bible always speaks of the lamp as something of a revelatory nature or speaking directly about the Davidic Messiah. It is no ordinary lamp. It's pointing back to Jesus' ministry of lighting up, of filling a dark room with light. A light does no good under a bed, under a basket, or hidden under a table. But until now, it has been 
a secret. It has been a mystery. So in a sense, it has been revealed. It has been covered. But the true purpose of it is to be revealed. The light comes to reveal. If you place something over a light or place the light under, some, under something, you can still see some light. But Jesus is here saying that the lamp will be placed high and lifted up so that it can be seen by all. And in a sense, in the Old Testament, there's never a time when the lamp is not lit. But it is, in a sense, hidden. But it's not that they had no grace, they had no revelation in the Old Testament. Only when Jesus came, the lamp goes up. Even though it's placed under a bed, you will still see light coming out. But it's not clear and it's not illuminating everything. But now, Jesus says, the lamp has come to reveal. It has come to light. It has come to shine. But Jesus here is saying that the lamp will be placed high and lifted up so it can be seen by all. This is not to affirm universalism, that whatever you believe, Jesus will be your light in the end. No. Just remember this light as we go to the last point soon. This light is paired between the parable of the sower, the seed and the soil, and it is paired with the two parables we'll soon come to. And in this, we, oh, we hear repeated again and again, hear, 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 hear what is said. Pay attention to what you hear. Again, this is a command, an imperative to give heed to what you hear, not like the crowds who did not hear. It's uh, listen carefully and listen to what is said. Jesus did not have a lamp waving it about saying, look, see. He said, listen carefully to my words and by your listening to what I say, you will prove that you are my disciples. So he is saying, listen, but what is implied is see the light. So these are paired to, to one another. It's listen to what I say about this lamp. This lamp is to be lifted high. That's what I meant. He's not waving light before. The, so then he would say, look or see. But he says, a lamp, I'm telling you about a lamp. Hear what I'm saying about it. This lamp will reveal everything. And then the, with what, measure, what you measure, you will be measured. It's like the standard you give to others, it will be used on you. In the pot in which you cook for others, you will be cooked, some said. Here then it's said to apply, to apply to one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The commentator Edwards says, The degree to which one hears the parables, the extent to which one allows the kingdom to break upon oneself, will determine the measure of one's understanding of it. Paraphrasing a little bit. Those who hear, those who knock until the door is open, will find the kingdom disclosed to them. But those of, those of hurried search, those who knock at the door of life in a tentative or brief way, will find the once joyous invitation, the seed given to them, to enter the kingdom have faded into a mirage of disbelief. So the commentator here says that if you, the measure which you try to understand it, is the measure that will be given to you of revelation. Charles Spurgeon once said, the hearer of the gospel will get measured, will get measure for measure, and the measure shall be his own measure. And it works out this way. To the one who has no interest in the gospel, the preaching of the gospel seems uninteresting. 
To the one who wants to find fault with the church or the preacher, they find plenty of faults. On the other hand, the more blessed hand, those who hunger find food, and those who want solid truth receive something from any faithful ministry. So both these points to the text and says that with what you listen with is what you'll get back. So then he's saying that if you have, you'll get more. But if you're not paying attention, if you're not, uh, as the commentator said here, if you're just tentatively looking or if you're just hurriedly seeing what you have heard of the gospel, Jesus spoke the word to them, but even that seed will be lost to them because they did not want to hear it. They did not want to give their measure to it. So if we, hear, we, if we listen, if we hear what Jesus is saying, if we want the things of God, more will be given. But if we like the thorny ground, if we like the thorny ground, always keeps one ear to the lust of the eyes and the wants of the worldly goods, the less we will want the kingdom of God. If we value the kingdom of God little, what little we know about it will be taken away from us. But if we measure it greatly, we will get more. As Jesus says in Luke, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Speaking of grain that is given to them. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So, Jesus came to reveal to us the kingdom of God. Listen to it then. Then it will be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path, as the psalm says. It will light up your house and reveal what kind of soil you are if you listen to your master. It will reveal to you the kingdom of God, and by looking at the light, by hearing the word, your soul will prosper and increase to the glory of God. And the final point then. The kingdom of God will come to fruition. Verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it's sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out its out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them and as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. So again, we return to the farming life, looking at the mystery of how the seed grows and the extent of the growth how it grows, and the extent of it. The kingdom of God is not here compared to a huge mountain or to a mighty river, but to a small seed these two more times. Here in the first occasion, the kingdom is like that of the process of growth. Night and day, the farmer looks upon his field, but he cannot tell one day from another. He cannot see the growth happening. He cannot say, well, today it's... Clearly, today it's 15.1 millimeters, and the next day it's still 15.1. He cannot measure it day by day as it goes, and uh, he looks at it, but the seed still grows. 
he knows not how. This is not to know, not, this is not to say that scientifically we don't know what happens to a seed. We know that if seed is placed in moist soil, it opens up and the sunlight gives it energy and it draws nourishment from the ground. We can draw it, we can explain what is happening to the seed, but that's not the point of the parable. Farmers then were not stupid. They knew these things generally then also. It's more the you don't see it growing. You don't make it grow in a sense. It happens automatically. The farmer does nothing for the seed after it's planted. He doesn't go into the ground and forces it to grow. He can only wait in faith. Like the farmer, we cannot do anything by human work or strive to make the work grow. In this sense, we are not even the farmer. We are the seed. We cannot grow ourselves, but by being in good soil, we grow up. As Ephesians 4.15 says, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. My son Levi is just a little bit more than two years old. He does not grow himself. He, and he cannot stop his own growth. He cannot say, well, this tall and no taller. Neither could I when I was younger and look to the stature I've become. I couldn't do it myself and I couldn't hinder it. It happens. It happened to me. So he will also, God willing, Levi, grow up to mature manhood physically, but I also pray that he will grow up spiritually. But he doesn't do it himself, the growth. It just happens to him in a sense. It's a passive aspect of growth. So it is with the gospel of the kingdom of God. We cannot grow it. It's not our job. We're not in control of it in ourselves. No picture is perfect. So, of course, we can work out our salvation in a sense. And in a sense, with a picture, we can, we can nourish the ground. We can water it. But the point of the parable is that the seed itself does nothing by itself. It's not actively, oh, I'm growing. It's passively, it just happens to it, and it grows up. And one day the sower will come for the harvest, some in 30, some in 60, and some 100-fold. Like the farmer, Jesus is confident that the kingdom will grow. And then, lastly, this mustard seed. No, it's not the smallest seed on the earth. Oh, the Bible says it's the smallest. Error, error, false have you ever, ever heard of hyperbole? It's, it's so small, it's like the smallest seed. Like you cannot even barely hold it between your fingers. Like a, it's so small. And it turns into a large tree, like 20 feet, which is about like six meters tall and six meters wide. And no, the, the seed, the mustard seed, doesn't turn into the greatest or biggest tree in the world. There are red oak and there are pines and there are big trees. So it's not to say that it is definitively the largest on all the earth and no comparison whatsoever. Every other three is 590. That's not the point of it. It is saying that in comparison to what it was, a small mustard seed, it becomes this great six meter high and wide tree. Like I went from yay, maybe, uh, I don't know, yay when I was born, and I turned into this. That's a pretty big growth. That was like maybe four times, 
five maybe even. But from a minuscule little point, growing, growing, taller than me, three times my height. Now that is a big growth, comparatively to where it started. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God began as something small, but in the end it will be a great tree where birds can nest and bring shade to dwell in it. The image of birds dwelling in a tree is used often in the Old Testament prophets to allude to the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's chosen nation and people. In the way that Gentiles would get to build their nests and join in with the people of God, so then will the gospel of this little mustard seed go up to a great kingdom where all the Gentiles, us included, are invited to come. It will offer a place for all peoples. My final conclusion then is, who is or who are the kingdom of God, the good soil? What will happen in the good soil it will increase abundantly. Will the growth come? Yes, the kingdom of God will come to fruition because it's God who ensures the growth. What can we then do? Listen to his instruction. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question three, asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? Answer, the scriptural principle Sorry, this prince, the scriptures principally teach. English is my second language. I, I use this again. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God, and what the duty God requires of man. So, in the Bible, we read, "How do we? Who is God, and how do we obey, obey Him? Because He has set prescripts, prescripts, and demands that we are to follow." So it is what we are to believe about God and what he wants us to do, basically. And this scripture, this word, this seed that is sown is the word of the kingdom. This brings the kingdom of God to earth in full as the messianic king Jesus brings the, as full as the messianic king and he teaches us how to be worthy of that kingdom by becoming his disciples, echoing the melodic line of Mark. And a word of encouragement. Despair not. He is not done with you. He can clear out stones in your life. Do you listen? He can revive any patch of hard ground. Are you listening? That is how any soil ever becomes good soil, by nourishment and clearing out. Remove all thorns, all worries and lusts for this world. Are you listening? The result, a harvest that will yield many fold to God's glory. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear.